Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 93. It is May 7th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we'll take a quick look at some of the latest happenings in the KBO, and we'll talk about something that Major League Baseball has to be thinking a lot about as they try to come up with a plan for resuming play in North America. What happens if a player tests positive? And Eno's had a chance to speak to Dan Straley, who's pitching in Korea right now, about what happens in the KBO if something like that unfolds. So we'll dive into that. Uh, We're going to touch on a topic that came up a couple weeks ago on a show, long-term strikeout rates. I haven't done complete research yet, but I've taken a look at some numbers and have seen some interesting trends already as uh, I've dug into that. We'll also talk about reliever usage, and uh, we've got a revision to the Project GOAT standings to pass along as well. We'll close things out with some beer of the week talk as well. Happy Thursday, Eno. How's it going for you today? I am a little bit chippy, I have to say. I'm a little angry. My biological father, who is in the classification of didn't bother, for most of his life has left me alone, and I've been happy with that. I've had a stepdad who I call dad. I've I've had many male role models. I feel pretty okay about that part of my life. I've even considered, you know, reaching out to him and I've, I've read some, some stories about people who have reached out and I've just thought, you know what? We don't know each other. Um, you know, I'd mostly just want to know what his medical history was. <laughs> um, and at this point I'm 40, so I'm deep in that medical history. I don't think I need him to tell me about what's happening to my body at this point. So. Uh, I've kind of decided it probably wouldn't be uh, that much. He doesn't have that much to do with me. Yes, uh, you know, with the nature involved, he's not half of me. Um, in any case, I've closed that book for most of, uh, for mostly in my life. He went out and wrote a book about me. That is very unexpected. He went out and wrote a book about me, uh, in German, uh, The American Son. And, there's some things that are so infuriating about this. I don't even know how to order them. So this, the, the book is the process of him like coming to find me. I think the most infuriating thing is I know he didn't try to find me. <laughs> so the entire premise of the book is a lie. It's a lie. We have, we have, we have friends. We have mutual friends in Germany that have my information and he knows where they like they still live where they lived that many years ago like he could have found those people he put them in the book too but he could have found those people he could have found my mom he could have found me he know and then here's how i know he didn't find didn't try to find me because he left my name in the book he left where i live in the book he left what I do in the book. If you know those three things, if you do a Google search, my email is like the second result. <laughs> you are very publicly accessible. <laughs> so, uh, the, the only thing that's given me peace is the book was destroyed by Der Spiegel, the, um, the, the magazine that reviewed it. That's how we sort of, that's how my mom found this and, um, all this stuff, but it was destroyed as um, basically uh, the casual ramblings uh, that amount to nothing more than I have a son. <laughs> the ca- what was it? The casual, cr- the cramped casual ramblings uh, 
the cramped casual ramblings of a self-professed preacher that amount to nothing more than I have a son. And um, there's a great part in it where it says, the, the first rule of writing is show, don't tell. Uh, this author should learn that rule. <laughs> so, uh, you know, people, uh, it, uh, people reach out to me and, um, it's, uh, it's interesting to, uh, sort of encounter other people's issues, uh, family issues and how that this relates to theirs. Uh, and I don't, interesting, the wrong word. I, I feel, um, uh, I feel a togetherness with other people that have had this, uh, have had issues like this in their family. Um, and, I appreciate the, the reaching out. Uh, but the reason that I emoted about this, the reason I'm telling it now, and the reason I said anything on Twitter is because I'm angry. <laughs> I'm angry. Like, it's not because I feel slighted or whatever. Like, I'm angry that he did this, like, lazy thing. And then he left my name in the book. You know what I mean? It's like, if he'd actually called me, I would have taken the call and try to be gracious because you know we all make mistakes and you know maybe he's a good guy i don't know um and you know we could have at least had a phone conversation i don't think i would have necessarily invited him back into my life completely but you know i would have talked to him uh and then he could have written this book uh, uh, more truthfully you know and then i might might not even be that bothered if you put my name in it but just put my name in it and not actually try it's just whoo <laughs> uh anyway so yeah i'm a little bit chippy Understandable, given the circumstances, <laughs> and it, it'll probably bring us to some other interesting places uh, along the way. But uh, I'm I'm really sorry that that turned out the way it did, though, because that's very disappointing, right? I mean, to to have yeah. what looked like a, a seedling of effort turn out to be just 230 pages of <laughs> rambling and lies, basically. That's that's terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh my god! And if he really did in the book, he apparently is like standing in Menlo Park. If he really did get that far and didn't go the the rest of the way, I guess it's it's just sad. And maybe I should have some pity on him, but I don't, I don't believe it. <laughs> it it so. just doesn't seem like at this point finding you in that circumstance is hard enough to have no. fallen short. No. No, not at all. I was looking at image searches. If you do an image search, the, the second image that shows up is uh, from an interview I did in uh, Menlo Park with the local um, with the local with a local publication. It's like, come on, dude. Uh, but anyway, so that's a that's a crazy thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that is an unusual uh, twist in our unusual times that, uh, yeah, right. frankly, I, I wouldn't have predicted that. But no. I think, if anything, the, these last two months have really driven home the idea that we really can't predict anything. I think we, mm. we can try to predict things, and sometimes we can end up being somewhat close to the right outcome. But a lot of things are impossible to predict, and yeah. they will always be impossible to predict despite our greatest efforts. You know, and I think that's actually a really interesting way to bring that back to what we do, because I think there's pressure on people in the fantasy sports industry and in baseball and in sports industries in general to make predictions. I mean, there's always the preseason predictions. And, um, you know, 
there's sometimes a like a a calling. Uh, what is it called? Like when you, when you like call the task. So like like I said during the Astros and Yankees series last year, that I thought that that was probably the World Series, and I was wrong. I mean, the World Series was really good, and the Nationals won. So I was wrong. I'm not saying I'm not trying to weasel out of being wrong, but it does point to how hard it is to predict these things, how there's pressure on us to do these things, um, and how um, I don't know. Is it is it useful? Obviously, we help people make better decisions. I I, I think, um, but to make very specific predictions, I think that what we try to do here is point to the best research point to the best sort of strategies and the best ways to think about things and not necessarily give you a list of names, you know, um, because it is, it's so impossible. And that's why one of my favorite things to do every year is bold predictions, because it's like, I'm going to try and do galaxy brain stuff here. I'm going to just like, since predictions are all useless anyway, let me just do something weird and predict that the reds win the central, you know, or, that this random pitcher wins a Cy Young. You know what I mean? It's like, why not? It, it'll, it'll, it'll be an exercise in uh, trying to predict the, the, the stuff we can't predict. You can't predict ball, you know? Um, and you can't predict life. <laughs> it would be boring if we could, though, in, yeah. in both cases. If you knew exactly how your life was going to go, it would be boring. And if you knew exactly how any season would go, it would be boring. It wouldn't be fun to play fantasy baseball. It wouldn't be fun to be a fan of baseball if you knew the outcomes and could accurately predict them time over time after time, right? Like, like the the book from from Back to the Future, the Almanac. Like if you had that, <laughs> that that would take so much joy out of experiencing the game. Oh, and this is this is and here's a way that you can actually really physically feel this. When they were showing these 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 replays of old games, it just doesn't have the same juice, right? You're like, oh yeah, Johan Santana like throws a no hitter. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. It's still fun to rewatch it, but if yeah, it's, but it's uh... not anything like I remember. I was actually at I was covering the the Fresno State Bulldogs against the uh, Stanford Cardinal, and I was at a game where Aaron Judge hit two massive taters off of Mark Appel. And I stopped watching that game because Johan Santana was about to throw the first no hitter in Mets history, and I was glued to my computer in the in the press box at Stanford, uh, watching that game, just like you know, holding on every every at bat. And you know, I remember that that uh, that single that should have been from um, Holiday, right? I think Matt Holiday hit a, a single down the line that should have been a single, but they they called it foul. I remember all that stuff. But watching it again, I was like, oh, yeah, dude, like, Johan looks tired. They should have taken him out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that rewatching that probably brings back a, a four or a five, but when it happened in the moment, it, you reached oh. an 11. I mean, like, yeah, you, exactly. you broke yeah. the scale because you'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, even the um, 20K games, you're, you're like, wow, it's a, it's a lot of strikeouts. Yeah, the the, the, the carry the carry wood twenty strikeouts, right? Like that game. I remember when that happened. I was like, "Whoa, that nothing that we're never going to see that again." And we've seen some kind of similar stuff since then. But even when you rewatch it, 
you're almost sad because you know the ending. When you don't know the ending, yeah. you could enjoy the middle. You could yeah. enjoy some of the peaks a little and more. And with Carrie Wood in particular, like they they're interviewing somebody, uh, like a um, they're interviewing a, a an actor during one of the breaks, and he says, "Oh, I think the Cubs." Are really going to put it together, you know, this year. We got some veterans, we got some young guys. Kerry Wood looks like the real deal. And just you're like, oh, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, what could have been? But when you're in that moment, you're like, oh, what could be? And that was 20 years ago yesterday. I believe not 20 years ago yesterday, 22 years ago yesterday. I could do math. I still know what year it is, Eno. I might not know what day it is. <laughs> I don't know. But I, don't I do know, know that it it's is. 2020. I know this is, is the, this is the worst actual year that I have been on the planet. <laughs> like, I, know, I know that. I'm, I'm certain of that. I'm not sure how much worse oh, it can get. We should have a year draft. We're drafting everything. Let's just have a year draft. <laughs> 2020. Oh, I mean, Last pick. <laughs> if if it wasn't already locked in, the murder hornets thing was just like proof. Like, hey, there there are more ways this can keep taking hard turns for the worse. worst. So, but I did learn on one of our, our our calls earlier this week that the the murder hornets. If you haven't heard about these, there's these hornets that they shred bees. And if you know anything about plants and flowers and whatnot, that bees are actually very important to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so bees being shredded by hornets is actually bad for us for a lot of reasons uh but in japan i guess there are some some bees that figured out how to stop the murder hornets they they swarm the murder hornet and it 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 like burns to death it overheats and dies which is yeah they have to like band together and overcome yeah like that's a it's a really i mean it's a drastic counteraction but necessary (laughs) <laughs> a metaphor for us. <laughs> I guess. I guess it is a metaphor for our lives. Together, but we if, can overcome 2020. <laughs> if, we, if we just all swarm around 2020, we can just <laughs> we make can it over declare heat. it 2021. <laughs> it, it, it will become 2021 in no time. Hey, well, I mean, we're in May. That we're, year we're, is we're, dead. <laughs> we're getting there. We're, we're getting there. Hey, so, how about how about how about New Year's on July 4th? If we could, if there's any way we could just uh, hit the fast forward button to 2021, <laughs> I think nine out of ten people, if not ten out of ten, would say, "Yep, hit the button. Let's <laughs> let's start over. It. Let's try let's again. Blow on the cartridge. Put it back in. Yep. Let's uh, let's make it happen. But okay. So in all of this, again, like, we're, we're laughing about it, but it, it, things are always unpredictable. They just we, we realize the weight of that in in times like these, and and that's where. Getting back to baseball, you know, the KBO and, and the light at the end of the tunnel that we've referred to, it, we're not quite as far along. We're not even close to as far along, but we're getting close to the point where Major League Baseball is supposed to provide a proposal to the players for how things are going to resume. And I think the the lingering question, or at least the secondary question, but primary concern has been health and safety of everybody involved all along, and what happens if a player or someone on the field, a manager would probably be included in this, this group too. What happens if one of those people tests positive? And in the KBO, they do have a plan for this. And you've spoken to Dan Straley, who's pitching in Korea this season. What did the KBO put in place for a scenario in which a player tests positive for COVID-19? Yeah, I can't speak with full authority on this because Dan Straley himself said that uh, he was kind of putting his head in the sand and, and just trying to put one foot in front of the other and, and not worry about that. And he said literally because 
you know, worrying about stuff reduces your immune system. So <laughs> I'd rather uh, be healthy and happy. But he did talk about what he's heard, and he kind of put that together with some speculation and was kind of talking about uh, what was possible. And um, I, I think that it's uh, – I've talked about how we're going to – we're all going to sort of figure this out together. Um, but the the general idea is that um, if someone tests positive, there's kind of a pause on all of baseball um, for a day or two as they figure out – uh, who they basically administer tests to anybody who'd been near the person, uh, that test positive, and then, um, they quarantine that group. So, uh, the question then is, and Straley pointed out, like, if it was an outfielder, like, I may not have come anywhere near him. So, or, or it, after an F7, the outfielder threw the ball back to the pitcher. Right. And the pitcher like rubbed his face, not thinking and about spat it. Spat on it. Yeah. And I mean, like again, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm just e- right. even in that circumstance, there's a at least a very low risk situation in play there. Yeah, but so like I, you can do the testing. Then basically, I think that basically the whole team would get tested. You'd find out how many. There'd have to be. I think the biggest part of the plan is actually uh, how how many constitutes. Uh, there, there's going to be a threshold and the threshold, like, let's say five people test positive on a team. Is that DL worthy or, uh, does the, does all the baseball stop for two weeks until those, those people are, are healthy again? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the question. So the question is, where's the threshold? And that's going to be something that's going to be argued about between the players association and the teams, because each one will have a different sort of perspective on it. Most people will want to play, I think, uh, but a team, like an owner may say, well, dude, I don't want to play if I'm missing my, you know, six of my players. That's like too many injuries at one time. Um, that'll, that'll cost us in wins, you know? So there's going to be some argument on what that number is, but there's going to be some number that's like, okay, uh, if it's two people, they were going to DL them and play on, uh, if it's six people, uh, whatever. So, um, we'll have to stop all of baseball for, for two weeks. So that's, that's, uh, that's, I think the feeling out process that is still left to be, but I think some people are acting like, um, no one in baseball has thought about this or, uh, that's impossible to do. And I don't think those two things are true. I think it's possible to figure out something that makes everyone, I mean, nobody's going to be totally happy. It's 2020. Nobody's going to be totally happy. <laughs> also true. <laughs> but, but if we can all accept a certain amount of sadness, um, maybe that can work. The other thing is how do we procure enough testing for baseball? Um, you know, I this is a sort of regional thing, but I know that um, anybody here in Santa Clara who wants a test can get one. Um, and I think the testing has been really ramped up. And I've mentioned before that like uh, Syria ah, in in um, in Italy uh, is attempting to co- overcome this by basically buying five tests for the general public for every test they want for themselves. And baseball has the resources to do something like that. It doesn't have to be five. I mean, I think even two or three uh, means that they're a net positive, basically, in terms of testing for for everybody. Um, And if they buy enough tests to test all the people that work in baseball and then also buy enough tests to basically two or three tests for people that are just in the surrounding communities, uh, then they're being, I think, a a net positive uh, uh, in that regard, even if they're taking tests out of the uh, main out of the out of the stream of available tests. So. I've seen a lot of sort of like focusing on those two aspects and as if they were uh, hurdles we couldn't overcome. 
and um, I don't, I, I don't agree. I think those hurdles are overcomable. Yeah, I, I get the sense that there have been a lot of conversations about what happens in this scenario and what happens in that scenario because we've said this before. There's so much at stake financially that a full shutdown again after restarting is something that Major League Baseball will try to take as many precautions as possible to avoid. And even the scenario you described where if a handful of players on one team tested positive, I, I guess I'm still cynical enough, even though I think there is a legitimate component where teams in the league want everyone to be safe, that they they would still play missing key players because having the games on TV and the importance of that revenue is so great that they would just try to forge ahead with whatever players they can pull together to keep the schedule moving. Yeah, that's a, that's another la- last thing I wanted to sort of talk about was I've seen a lot of people say that like the only reason to start baseball is um, like uh, escapism or uh, some sort of national psyche thing, uh, and I don't I don't think that's true. Like when I think of restarting baseball. You know, I think of, um, you know, the wonderful lady that, uh, that I say hi to every day when I, who checks me in at the, at, at Oracle Park, you know, uh, when, when I go through security there or, uh, the dudes out front at, at the A's game or, um, you know, different vendors that I've come into contact with or Mikey Thalbum, who's like the, the, the clubhouse attendant in the in for Oakland like, these are not rich people uh, these are people who are not getting paid and uh, they're hurting and like maybe if we had a more robust social safety network in this country um, it'd be easier to continue uh, these lockdowns indefinitely um, but um, you know one in five kids right now is going hungry <laughs> in this in this country Um and, uh, and schools are a part of that. So, you know, uh, it's a, given what we have, um, there are difficult choices to be made. And I, I, and I will not Hector or admonish anybody on either side of this. Um, and I hope to, uh, sort of find my way through the middle on, on, um, on the data that's out there and on the best choices we can make. And, uh, so I don't, I doubt that I, I just wanted to push back a little bit. This is not just about the psyche. This is about the economy as well. This is about people who are suffering. Yeah. There's definitely a major financial component to this and yeah. it, it both are true. There's a, a nice escapism outlet for, for not just people like you and I who depend upon the leagues existing and running in order to remain employed, but for people who need something to do in the evening, something to help pass the time, you can't keep rewatching Tiger King. Yeah, right. And a collective thing. You know, the thing about Tiger King, that's interesting. We can all make jokes about it, but there's no impetus in today's modern world for us to all watch at the same time. No. You know? No, there's not. There's, like, we just don't have schedules for that. We can all stream it. We can all get it here. We can do that. Sports is the only thing where you know, we have our collective eyes turned to one thing at the same time. And that sort of feeling, um, I don't know, I, I'd hate to denigrate it too much because it's like, you know, that's when you go on Twitter and you're like, oh, crap. And there's like someone shares a gif of the home run or, or screw that guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, it's a real release. And we're all kind of feeling pent up. And I think 
the KBO starting up has helped that a little bit, but I think but the, it's in the middle of the night. <laughs> the timing makes it very difficult for all of us to have that shared experience. If if there was a if it was a coverage assignment for me, it'd be very different. It's it's not. It's just an extra thing to try and and get to when I can. And yeah, I end up watching replays basically and and uh, and recorded ones, you know, which is more like watching Tiger King. Yeah, unfortunately, it is a little bit more like watching Tiger King, but we're glad to have it back nonetheless. I saw, I think, Preston Tucker got on the board with a big night, had a home run this week. Uh, I mean, Aaron Althair hit one. Uh, it, it's it is fun to see those box scores and to see highlights and to see a few bat flips sprinkled in to the mix as well. Yeah, Chang Mo Koo. Uh Not only does is Chang Mo like I love that name. It's a, a really good name. <laughs> I'm all in on Chang Mo. Um, uh, he had an interesting history because he's always had the good strikeout rate, uh, but his homer rate has fluctuated. And with the deader ball, uh, I thought he would have a great year. And his first start was uh, eight strikeouts against uh, two walks in, uh, I think, uh, seven or eight scoreless. So uh, he had a great night last night. And, um, uh, yeah, it's been fun to, to play along. Future big leaguer, Chang Mo Ku? Uh, maybe. He has the slider. And uh, right now, the emphasis on the slider in the, in the big leagues is, is such that, um, you know, having good slider, having decent velocity, um, you know, that, that puts you ahead of a lot of people. So uh, I think maybe. Um, I was talking to a journalist who covers, um, I think it was the Bears, and uh, he did tell me that the average velocity over there is 88 or 89. So the the thing that you're looking for if you're watching is uh, you want to see those 155s. You want to see those 154s and 155s. That means the person's throwing 93, 94. Uh, and that's kind of a, 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 a kind of median barrier for entry for getting to the big leagues these days. Yeah, that has become the, the threshold in recent years. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, even still, replays are, are better than, than nothing. I, I'm happy we have that. And for people who have been getting up in the middle of the night, I'm stoked for you that you're able to do that. I, I don't have the – it's not I drive. I just I, – I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> the rest of my day doesn't work in a way where I can push myself to do it, which uh, maybe it's a discipline problem, but uh, – Nevertheless, it's a small problem. You lack the discipline to stay up till four in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird way to say it, right? Or, yeah. Teen, teenage you is shaking his finger at you. <laughs> he, he's always disappointed in me, but that punk, <laughs> that punk should get off my lawn. Like he's, <laughs> he's a jerk anyway. Get a haircut. Yeah. <laughs> if you're bored in the house, bored in the house, bored, why not spend some time on yourself? Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving with their personal trimmer. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. Their waterproof, cordless body trimmer makes it safe and easy. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new replacement blade refill for your trimmer delivered to your door every three months making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code THEATHLETIC. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one, but two free gifts, a travel bag, which is a $39 value, and the patented high-performance Manscaped boxer brief. So go to manscaped.com today and use the code THEATHLETIC. 
Athletic. All right, you know, mailbag questions have been great lately, and they continue to provide different paths for us to talk about players and topics. This one from this week that we want to feature came from George. Uh, He writes, Bill James wrote an excellent essay on the optimal use of relief pitchers in his historical baseball abstract. Haven't read in a while, but I do remember the creation of the save stat dramatically changed how relief pitchers were used. If you go back to before saves were a thing, a few pitchers had 20 win, 20 save seasons. Think about how a pitcher would be used to make that result possible. It seems like the Rays have fully implemented the approach he talked about. What are the implications to fantasy baseball if other teams adopt this approach? Yeah, um, you know, there's a couple resources I just wanted to point to. Alex Fast at Pitcher List has done a couple pieces in a row called uh, We're Drafting Saves the Wrong Way. And uh, it's sort of a fascinating look into how, and we've talked about this on the show, about how uh, fewer and fewer uh, relievers are uh, getting 90% of the team saves or fewer and fewer relievers are uh, getting the bulk of their team saves and more and more relievers are getting 5 to 10 saves a year. Um, and that's part of my Diego Castillo infatuation. Um you know, I've got tons of shares of that dude because, you know, he throws 100 miles an hour uh, with with great movement. Uh, hits like a 94-mile-an-hour slider. Like, yeah, I'm on board, dude. Um, and I think of a, uh, also um, this table that I made on Fangraphs, a very simple table where I looked at uh, by team um, starters innings pitched. Um, and since we're looking backwards and we're looking at 162 games, um, you know, just looking at the bulk, you can see who is emphasizing the bullpen more than others. And at the top is, are the angels. Uh, and then you've got the Rays, Blue Jays, Mariners, Yankees, Brewers, teams that you kind of expected, uh, peppered in with a couple others. But if you then slide over and look at the quality of the starting rotation, um, and you can kind of take the angels and Blue Jays out. The Angels, Blue Jays, and Mariners, they didn't have their starters go very far because their starters weren't very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they had bad, bad uh, starting pitching. But the Rays got 17, 18 wins out of their starting rotation and still used them the second least. Um, the Yankees had a good starting rotation and used them uh, the fifth least. And the Brewers are up there. So, um, you know, the Red Sox, the Rangers, the Padres, like there are a bunch of teams now that are uh, focusing on that uh, that type of usage. Um, and what does it mean? It means, um, you know, two or three people can get saves. Uh, it means more wins are available uh, to, uh, to the bullpen. Um, you know, for example, the Brewers had a good starting rotation, but only got 44 wins uh, from their, uh, from their starting pitching. Um Whereas, you know, the, uh, Nationals got 66 wins from their, from their starters and the Astros got 79 wins from their starters. So, um, you know, there's definitely, uh, some wins to be vultured and that's going to happen more, uh, this season. Um, and what it means for fantasy, I think is just, um, don't invest heavily in saves. I mean, it's a kind of an old school conclusion to come to. Uh, it's something that I've kind of done for a long time, but, uh, two out of uh, another one, another piece that I want to recommend is Al Melchior, uh, our own Al Melchior on Fangraphs, writing that two out of every five saves uh, in the NFBC last year came from the waiver wire. Hmm. 
So, um, you know, get a, get a top guy and then, uh, and then just get guys, get good relievers, maybe on these teams, um, that, that, that spread the saves around. Um, and, uh, so I think that it speaks to Rafael Montero, um, on the Rangers and Diego Castillo on the Rays. Um, maybe even someone like Austin Adams on the Mariners. Um, and then, uh, Kniebel on the Brewers. Well, and I think the Brewer situation is one where they've shown us a willingness to do it kind of the Rays way, just to borrow something conceptually from George's question. You, know, you have some teams who are willing to use their best reliever in the most important spot and not worry about the save, and that's the right way to manage a bullpen. I mean, this is something that has been written about on fan graphs and other places for 10 years now at least. And it, yes, it makes fantasy more difficult, but we would all agree if we were managing teams and trying to win baseball games, that's how we'd want to run the team. Yeah. It does also have implications for starting pitching. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a piece about what, what is an ace. And I was talking to Adam out of, you know, and he was like, you know, pitching on the Yankees, uh, think about Ian Happ. He could go five innings of one run ball and the expected numbers, like the sort of expected strength um, of the next pitcher would of of, the, of a reliever would would outpace what you would expect from Ian Happ in that sixth inning every time, right? And that sort of calculation is being made more mathematically um, and more aggressively by almost every team. Um, you know, the Braves have Alex Anthopoulos as the manager, as the, as the general manager. Now, uh, in the last four years, they don't have a single closer that has gotten over 90% of the team saves over 80% of the team saves over 70% of the team saves. They have one reliever in the last four years that has gotten over 60% of the team saves. And so remember that when you're looking at Will Smith or Mark Melanson, sure buy one, but don't, don't spend. That's what's made Will Smith signing there so frustrating is the concern that based on what they've said with Melanson beginning the season as the closer that even if they use a traditional closer, Smith's not the guy right away. And it could take a couple of weeks, it could take a couple of months, and it may never happen where it switches. Or they could just be one of those teams that's falling in line with the new way of of handling the bullpen where Smith's probably going to work the 7th and 8th a lot of days when he pitches because that's when the most difficult situation comes up late in the game. But there will be some times where he pitches the ninth because that's when the two, three, four hitters are coming up. Yeah. And, and Shane Green has some pretty silly splits. Let me see if I can find this uh, easily. But, um, you know, if he's just facing a righty, uh, let's see what his, his numbers were last year. If that's, if that's, you know, yeah, he has a, last year he had a 210 Woba against righties and a 324 against lefties. Uh, how does that uh, translate into other kinds of stats? Let's see here. Um, against righties, uh, he he gave up uh, 0.9 homers per nine. Uh, against lefties, 1.5 homers per nine. He had a 3.52 ERA uh, FIP against uh, righties, a 4.21 against lefties. So he's really good against righties. So you know he could get a he could get a save where they've already used somebody. 
um, you know, earlier, and there's a bunch of righties coming up in the ninth inning, uh, and Melanson is hurt, or uh, they want Shane Green's velocity, uh, and then I think of Luke Jackson. Luke Jackson's a really good pitcher, and I think you know in Atlanta, some fans were upset about some of the dinks and dunks that uh, led to some blown saves. But if he's pitching in the middle innings, he's going to have a fair amount of wins. Yeah. I think him and Chris Martin and Darren O'Day are going to have, you know, like five, six, seven wins, I think. So I think the thing that's a little bit different, though, about this era with the Rays using the opener, the 20 win, 20 save seasons, those probably don't happen because if you're an opener, you're not going to get a win. You just, you're yeah. not eligible. You're not going to get it. Uh, but what I think you are going to see is teams that do that are going to have saves split up like the Rays do. The, the the way using an opener, I think, makes it the biggest fantasy impact is it turns Ryan Yarbrough into like a top 30 fantasy pitcher. That's not a thing that happens if you use Ryan Yarbrough like a traditional starter. If he begins the game and you try to force him through the lineup a third time and he gets that massive third time to the order penalty, the ratios fall apart. He's in a position where he's not winning as many games. Whereas if you give him four innings as a follower, put the opener in front of him, he can get those wins, he can give you elite ratios, and his stuff will play up to the point where he's also going to give you an above average or at least an average strikeout rate. So because the usage is optimal, you get unexpected better results from otherwise difficult-to-roster players or guys that you would use a lot less if they were handled in a more traditional sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like last year, Lou Jackson had nine wins and 18 saves. You know, roll that back to five saves, but what what kind of a what kind of a value would a would a reliever have with like a three two ERA, thirteen strikeouts per nine, eight wins and five saves? Like that's about there's value there. Yes, that that's optimal staff filler if you know it's going to happen that way. But I think it's hard to it's so to hard to predict it. Yeah, like in retro drafts, like the eighty two and the ninety draft that I've done, like when you when yeah. you can see it after the fact, it's really valuable and you you build around it. When you're trying to project it for the future because of the way those stats work, it's not quite as viable as you'd like it to be. Here, so sometimes, um, you know, uh, a reliever with an iffy year will get some, a bunch of wins because they, um, they were like a closer that blew a game will, 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 um, will get a win after he lets the, the team tie it up, right? So that's, that's why Luke Jackson had nine wins last year is because he let other teams tie it up some. Um, that's part of it. But the other part of it is if you, if you want to try and predict these things is that the wins come from good teams with good bullpens here. I just had the list of reliever wins last year. John Gant led them with on the Cardinals with 11 wins. He could do something similar again this year because he's kind of like the fifth reliever on a good team that, uh, will put him in, in the, in, in a, in, in a tie game. And um, and he's a decent pitcher. Uh, keeps the game close, and you want the rest of the bullpen to be good to actually finish that game out and win, right? So you've got Gant on the Cardinals, um, Workman on the Red Sox because he was uh, kind of in and out of the, of different roles, but he had a really good season. Luke Jackson, I think, decent bullpen, decent team. Marcus Walden, decent bullpen, decent team. Um, Daniel Hudson, uh, Junior Guerra. Uh, Ryan Yarbrough, follower, Craig Stammen, decent bullpen, decent team. Um, uh, you know, Matt Albers, another brewer, Seth Lugo. 
so I would be looking for, um, you know, if I was looking for the kind of five, you know, six win, five save guy, I would be looking at like Seth Lugo types and Diego Castillo and Luke Jackson and um, kind of like guys who are behind the guys who get drafted. And I and I think there would be there in almost any league, maybe not 12, but in a 15 team league, those are fine final relievers, uh, final players uh, to, to pick. You you put that kind of guy on your on your team and that's the kind of guy that you accrue some stuff early on and then you drop them for a full-time closer when the waiver wire produces one yeah and, and sometimes those guys become full-time closers like taylor yeah. rogers last year probably would have fit that description pretty well and he just became the guy in minnesota so it, it, it's often a split between a few wins and a few saves good ratios and k's but then occasionally you get lucky and you get 20 or 25 saves because things shift that's just how it goes. Uh, George sent us another email. Pretty simple one. Subject, lips that touch Coors Light. Body will never touch mine. <laughs> well, I can't kiss George. <laughs> Same. I, I guess I uh, a, lot of, a lot of Coors Light. in uh, the, the kid that I just yelled at to get off my lawn was drinking a Coors Light. Was playing some flippy cup. He had a 30-pack in his left hand that he had... <laughs> <laughs> crushed can in the other and he, he was looking for a, a Beirut table because that's all he cared about <laughs> I do I do have a, a mea culpa uh, to another uh, piece of mail that we've gotten and I did run goat to incorrectly I don't know how it happened uh, four uh, four scores just kind of ported over from whip to ERA or from ERA to whip for some reason uh, I don't know how it, how it happened. I apologize. We do have a new winner. Um, Sean T is second. Uh, Sean T and Kevin H are second with Monroe's Reform Doctrine. Um, when I reran it, um, they lost by seven points to Scott E and his Eggs and Woe Bacon version two. Um, so I just wanted to apologize uh, and highlight Scott E's excellent work. I... Uh, didn't give him enough points in whip. I gave him 30 or 20 points too few in whip. And uh, that's just my fault. Uh, one of the things that uh, Scott E. did better than Sean T. Uh, was a focus on batting average. Um, he had 225 points to uh, Sean T.'s 172. Um, let's see here. I've got his open here. Uh, so he had Joe Maurer as a catcher, helping him with batting average. Albert Pujols with a 359. Miguel Cabrera at CI uh, with 348. Um, he also had Robin Yount, but he used Brett Boone from the Mariners. Oh, that was a big season. Oh, you remember that season? 331 and 37 homers. Brett Boone. Uh, he also used Jose Canseco, Larry Walker, Barry Bonds, Albert Bell from the White Sox in 96. Hit 328 with 48 homers and 11 stolen bases and 148 RBI. And he also used that Sammy Sosa 1998 season, which uh, has been common across uh, some of the top ones. He also did the Icorn Gambit. Um, and a lot of the the winning teams used Blake Snell in 2018. Yeah. You know what? The White Sox were pretty underutilized. I don't even know if underutilized is the appropriate word. I think they were the least used team. Yeah, they, they were frequently Padres ignored. or White Sox one of the two 
I just uh, I just had a, a flashback to I had an Albert Bell White Sox jersey in eighth grade. I think it was after I lived in Illinois for one year, and I really wish I still had that jersey. It, it might be the reason why I was carrying cases of Coors Light around, and <laughs> shotgunning beers um, as I, I got older. But um, that it was fun. Was it? Was it? Is it fair to call him irascible? It was kind of. I remember him being kind of like uh, argumentative a little bit, and I just remember the the cork bat thing and trucking Fernando Vina. Yeah, that was when he was with <laughs> yeah. Cleveland. And there's a there's a funny backstory on that that I never knew, but I, I think Davey Nelson, who for years was on the Brewers broadcast, he passed away uh, a year or two ago now. Uh, but he was a coach at the time, and he earlier in the game, Davey, who by every account is one of the nicest people in baseball, he actually got on Albert for not running out a ground ball like prior to this. And then in his next at bat, that happened. Um, so that was kind of an odd twist. Like, wow, like that's a, I never would have expected Davey Nelson to have a, a tie to that story with Albert Bell, basically just running over Fernando Vina, which a lot of yeah. people probably remember that play. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty well, uh, highlighted at the time. I can picture Albert Bell's swing in my head too. A way better player than, uh, than he gets credit for because of a lot of the things that we're, we're talking about right now that kind of overshadowed some of the, the production. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. So with Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash rates for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash rates for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. All right, you know, I mentioned this at the top, uh, long-term strikeout rates. I'm beginning to put the pieces together, and I'm, I'm beginning to, I guess, recall some of the players who have surprised us over the years. I think if you look back at the prospect strikeout rates for Chris Bryant compared to what he's done over the course of his big league career, that would stand out as a surprise. George Springer is a, a prominent example of this, too, a guy that when he was coming through the Astros system, it was always, well, he's probably going to strike out 28 or 30% of the time, and you're going to get a low batting average, but he'll yeah. walk and he'll steal bases. I missed on him. I, I think everybody kind of did, though, right? I, I, I think there's, there's two things that I'm starting to hone in on as I build this out. I want to find the outliers like that and figure out how they broke the mold, how they got away from the, the trends. And I also want to find specific results and say, okay, Normally, usually what we can expect is if you struck out 22% of the time at AAA, you're going to strike out 27% of the time in the big leagues, whatever that yeah. number actually is, right? Like I, I want to know that, but I also want to drill into the outliers and figure out, are there certain types of hitters who are more likely to improve over time in the big leagues or more likely to even stagnate in the big leagues? Because you're going to see every possible combination 
But uh, yeah, guys like Bryant and Springer have have really kind of jumped off the page as some of our bigger outliers over the years in this regard. Uh, and we'll, let me see, Bryant had big strikeout rates in the minors. Bigger in the minors than what he's been doing now in the big oh, leagues. Yeah. Initially in the big leagues, he was kind of following that same pattern. But, but both then, him and Springer struck out thirty percent of the time the first year. Right, came in high and then brought it down and have been even better than they were in the minors, which. Again, isn't something I would have necessarily expected at the time when they were in the minors. Yeah, it is weird. Have you found any sort of patterns? I'm just in the initial phases of it. So mostly just bringing it up to remind people that it's something that I care about, that I'm digging into. And uh, Mm -hmm. if anyone out there is listening and has done some research like this already, please direct my attention to it just because I would... I would like to read it and look at the methods and see if there's anything I can do to possibly improve upon them and advance things if it's already been started somewhere else. Uh, but yeah, even like Yuli Gurriel, he wasn't in the minors very long. I'm looking at what he had. 18% high A, 25% double A, 21% triple A. Are those rehab assignments though for him? I don't think he was really in the, the minors at all. 10.6% in the big leagues. That's a, that's a massive drop. Yeah, and... What I what I can think of, I immediately thought of this piece uh, by Chris St. John on Beyond the Box Score called Success Rates for Prospects Based on Walk and Strikeout Rates. But you're not quite asking the same question uh, because for all intents and purposes, all the guys we mentioned are successes, right? But there's a difference in fantasy. Like We almost want the fantasy success rate, which is a higher threshold. So, like, there's a difference between what if George Springer had continued to strike out 30% of the time and had been a guy who kind of oscillated between 230 and 250 every year and was just not quite the guy he is now, right? And, you know, that those two things are different uh, for fantasy. And it's it's really important to kind of figure out, like, will Keston Hero's strikeout rate go down this year because he's more like George Springer or will it continue to stay high? Um, so the one thing that I would say that is interesting about this research is that he put people in bins. And so, um, he looked at, um, you know, how productive were people that had a low walk rate? How productive were people that had a low strikeout rate? How, how, you know, and that sort of deal. Um, and, um, you know, he put them into like low walk rate. Low strikeout rate. How many people of those were productive and how many were bust? Low walk rate, low strikeout rate, uh, 67% were bust. High walk rate, high strikeout rate, 70% were were bust, which is, I think, surprising. There's plenty of people where you'd say, oh, look, he can, he can, he can, he has played discipline. That's good. Um, uh, But some of the truisms are true. Low walk rate, high strikeout rate, 86% bust. Right. That, so, that, that makes sense that that'd be a very high bust rate category. That's your, uh, like, I'm trying to think of, is it Josh Vitters? Who was the um, the Cubs prospect uh, that hit the ball real hard and ran real well, but just had a low strikeout rate and a hot, high a high strikeout rate and a low walk rate. Nah, it wasn't Vitters. Hmm. 
around the same time. Bitters is strange, though, because he does fit the pattern of guy that didn't strike out at all, really, in the minors relative to then getting to the big leagues, striking out a ton, and he didn't get many chances in the big leagues either. Like, there was a, a lot of, hey, what could he have done if he actually got the chance? And I, I look back at some glove first players over the years. Brandon Crawford, probably a good example of this. When you provide above average or excellent defense at a, a position where it's hard to find that, you get the benefit of more reps. And more reps, in some cases, maybe bring you to a better floor. It might take a longer time to get there, but I don't know if Brandon Crawford, for most people as a prospect, was ever going to get to the level we saw in 2015. That was the the peak offensive season, a 21-homer season, especially in that park. You know, He was really just a all-glove no bat shortstop for the first two and a half seasons in the big leagues. And then things started to click a little for him in 2014 before that 2015 season. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the, I, I figured out who I was thinking about was Brett Jackson, but he actually had decent uh, walk rates, but he never made it as big leaguer. Uh, and his triple a was, you know, 10% walk rate, 30, 34, 33% strikeout rate. So, um, and, and like, I wonder, I just had a thought, like, I wonder if some of this stuff like won't be obvious in the numbers because I'm thinking about the difference between the minor leagues and the major leagues. And one of the things is velocity. And I just wonder if some of these guys, um, you know, do well against velocity, but do, uh, have some trouble against slop. Hmm. And in AAA, you might see a fair amount of starters like Jason Vargas types that are kind of trying to hold on and come back um, that throw, you know, don't throw great velocity, but throw a lot of slop. So you may have a high strikeout rate there. Then you come to the big leagues and your first year, you just have a high strikeout rate because you're just adjusting to the big league. And then in your second league, you're like, you know what? I can hit the high velocity and you zone in on the fastball and, and you hit the snot out of the ball. So maybe interesting to look at, um, like to bin major leaguers who came up uh, with a high strikeout rate and bin them into ones that continued with a high strikeout rate and ones that didn't that improved, right? Yeah, I'd see so why your, and how. Yeah, you have your two cases and look look at what characteristics the ones that improved a lot had. Um, so it's a little bit like this Chris St. John piece, but more emphasis on who improved in the big leagues beyond. Um, and then you might be able to take. Um, you might be able to look at say, oh, look, the guys who improved their strikeout rate in the big leagues um, all could hit velocity really well. Yeah, they came into the league, crushed fastballs, struggled with breaking stuff, learned how to lay off bad breaking pitches. There and, you go. You know, some, yeah. there's, there's some path to how this happens, and my goal is to ultimately find it. Um, so yeah. that's, that's worth the yeah. early, early stages right now, but um, still drilling into it. If that was something that we brought up a couple weeks ago that sounded interesting, it's not going away. It's just going to take a little time to figure out the best way to map it all out and put it all together. I do want to point out the best bust rate uh, b- bracket, just because this is fascinating research for people who are in dynasty leagues. Uh, the best bust rate bracket, the best production uh, came from high BB average K and high BB low K. I mean, duh ish, but uh <laughs> In high BB low K being the best is kind of dullish. 49% bust rate, 38% productivity, both um, high numbers. 
However, high BB average K uh, had the highest productivity percentage, 39% productive, um, and the lowest uh, bus percentage. So the actual best bin um, was high BB average K. Which is is a bit of a twist. You're looking for um, like 10, 12% walk rates and 20% strikeout rates. 18% yeah. 18% strikeout rates. Like those are the those are the players that um I I would say probably show the ability to have a good hit tool and add uh some ability to discern pitches. Right. Yeah, D- different different things, different skills drive those numbers and maybe isolate in different directions. Because you could be overly patient and not have a great hit tool and that would be high BB high K. Mhm. And um that's kind of Kevin Biggio. So can Kevin Biggio uh, go from high BB, high K, uh, you know, and, and it seems like this kind of research would be like super important right now because we have a fair amount of uh, young players that just hit the league um, and some of them had some high strikeout rates. And like for me, my bet looking at this uh, for prospects, my bet is that Keston Hura's strikeout rate goes down and Kevin Biggio stays the same. Right, because well, Biggio dropped at AAA a ton, got down to sixteen point one percent, and then spiked back up to twenty eight point six, and that was after twenty six point three at Double A, twenty five point two at High A. He, no, but you're right. I mean, and he's so extremely patient; like he's the most patient player in baseball, uh, to the point where he's letting strikes go by, which could be correctable, and maybe that's part of what was happening at AAA. He wasn't letting strikes go by, and it's just harder to not let strikes go by in the big leagues. And you're not going to necessarily pick that up right away against top-level pitching. But uh, I'm enjoying it, and I'm only about 5% of the way into it so far. So <laughs> we'll uh, close things out with beer of the week. It sounds like uh, beer mail has been uh, something in your life recently. What's uh, What's been showing up at your door? Yeah, I wanted to thank uh, Greg and Andrew. Uh, Andrew uh, is the owner of the Wildwood Tap House in... Um, uh, Wildwood Tap House in Hillsboro, uh, where the Hillsboro Hops play. And once you are allowed to, uh, I suggest going there and having a beer. Uh, he helped uh, a, a group of uh, of his fantasy league, his fantasy league sort of got together uh, and put together like a, a big a big beer trade. Um, and so I have a bunch of Oregon beer in my fridge and. I can't say I haven't. I have drank it all. It just arrived, uh, but I'm super excited to start drinking it all. I just wanted to highlight um, three things. And one of the things that's cool about this uh, that's a little bit different from my beer trades in the past. Beer trades, I've usually uh, identified beers I wanted and and kind of had a conversation and and given them what they wanted. They gave me what I wanted. In this case, um, you know, they kind of put together this this package. Uh, without asking me anything and i love it because it has beers in it that i wouldn't normally have and there's a a white ale from a holy mountain that i'm super excited but there's also a beer from monkless called curtain closer that's a quintuple (laughs) it's a belgian quintuple so it's gonna be very sweet it's gonna be very sweet and it's like a 14 percenter or something so it's going to be a good night beer um i'm also excited for an allegory wheelbarrow of swords um just i've heard good things about allegory as a brew as a brew house 
Um, and I'm excited to try that one. And then Block 15 Sticky Hands. Block 15 has been long a favorite of uh, listener Danny, Danny K. Uh, Danny has, uh, given us great beers at, uh, first pitch and, uh, we've enjoyed, um, uh, toasting him and hope to toast him again in the future. And I, and a toast to, to Andrew and, and Greg for putting together this massive beer trade that, uh, will allow me to try styles I don't normally try. Um, and, uh, from breweries that I don't even recognize. So I'm, uh, super excited to learn a little bit more about Portland beer, uh, and Oregon beer because, uh, one of the things that's crazy about Oregon beer is yes, there are the breweries, you know, maybe you recognize block 15, but there is uh, such an ubiquity of brewing in Portland that there are so many, like, like any restaurant you go to in Portland brews. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They just, they all, they all do both. Every coffee house brews beer too. And like, so there's this like second level of beer in Portland that I know nothing about. Like I know about Cascade and I know about Great Notion and I know about, you know, all these like, you know, the top level beers. Uh, but I don't know about Allegory and I don't know about Monkless and, uh, I don't know about these sort of second percolate, second percolating level, uh, in Portland. So I'm super excited to dive into this one this weekend. Yeah. I've got a big beer run coming up. I'm going to, make a trip around a few local breweries, buy a whole bunch of different styles and then make new six packs and 12 packs and then drop them off on doorsteps of some friends. So yes, try to do the support beer uh, thing, you know, with a epic sort of beer run. Yeah. Ralph Lifshitz, uh, prospect Jesus on Twitter, um, did a little bit of that. And, um, it was fun to see that he, that someone uh, returned favor and, and dropped some beer off for him. So this is a fun thing. I I've sent some beer to some of my friends in New York, um, I've got a single friend in New York who lives by himself in an apartment on the Upper East Side. Um, and in some of our Zooms, he seemed sad. So I sent him beer. Nice. Very nice gesture. <laughs> well, if you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take a moment to do that. Thank you to all of you who've done that. We really appreciate it. It helps people find our show. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get a free 90-day trial at theathletic.com slash free 90 days. If you can support the site with a paid subscription, go to theathletic.com slash rates and barrels, and you'll get 40% off a subscription. As always, you can email us, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. Thanks to George and everybody else who wrote in this week for great questions. Be sure to spell out the word and. If you go the email route, you can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.